You're listening to audio from Stapleton Baptist Church. If you would like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit stapletonbaptistchurch.org. We pray this message blesses you. And now you'd think Jacob, of all people, would know better than to play favorites with his children. After all, it was favoritism on the part of his parents, Isaac and Rebekah, that led to all kinds of trouble, his own brother trying to kill him. Yet here he is showing this ridiculous favoritism to Joseph. There's nothing subtle about it. And on top of that, it tells us that Joseph brought a bad report from his brothers to his father. Now, you may want to conclude that Joseph is a spoiled brat or he's a tattletale. But I would suggest that would be a bit unfair of Joseph. We'll see later in the story that Jacob sends him to his brothers to bring back a report on them. So Joseph's just doing what he's told. Jacob is the one foolishly putting him in these situations. I really think it's more accurate uh, for us to see Joseph as a rather naive boy at this point. He's innocent, he's naive, but these factors all lead to his brothers hating him. It actually tells us they hate him so much they can't even talk to him. They can't even have a civil conversation But then matters get worse, and we see Joseph's naivety on full display in verse 5. Read with me there. It says, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Let's stop there. Joseph obviously isn't doing himself any favors in this situation. He has two separate dreams with similar images. The first dream uses the imagery of sheaves of wheat. The wheat would have been bound together in these bundles or sheaves to make it easier to store or transport. And each of the sons in the dream have a sheaf. And all the sheaves come and bow down to Joseph's sheaf. And Joseph's brothers obviously understand what's implied by this dream, that they will bow down to him. And that's a ridiculous idea because he's son number 11 out of 12. There's no reason that, they would have, that he would have any authority or power. And their hatred for him grows even stronger But then comes another dream. This one also involves bowing down, this time the sun, the moon, and 11 stars. And this actually sparks a rebuke from Jacob, his father, because this dream suggests that not only do his brothers bow down, but also his father and mother, represented by the sun and the moon. Now, of course, his mother, Rachel, is dead at this point, so it's likely that when he says mother, it would refer to one of the other wives, or Leah, who would kind of have taken on that role. And this would have been a very bold and disrespectful idea to suggest that parents would bow down to children in any way. Yet the last sentence tells us that Jacob kept the saying in mind. In other words, even though 
Jacob rebukes him, it's as if Jacob senses that maybe these dreams are not just dreams. There might be a greater power at work here. After all, there's already this pattern in Genesis of the blessing and authority skipping over the firstborn, just like it did with Jacob and Esau. Let's pick back up in verse 12. It tells us, Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I'll send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Let's pause there. Remember, Joseph is the favorite son, but he's still a boy, and apparently he's not being sent out to work in the fields with his flock, especially wearing his fancy robe. But now Jacob sends him to find his brothers and bring back a report to him. Now, Shechem's nearly 60 miles away from where they're living in Hebron at the time. And that's quite a ways for Joseph to travel alone, uh, let alone find his brothers. I mean, this is a rather desert climate. Um, That's why they're having to take their flocks so far away to find good pasture uh, land that they can graze. And so he's wandering around the fields trying to find them. There's no cell phones. There's no GPS. There's open hills and valleys. And Joseph is just hoping to find some sign of a flock where he can find his brothers. But then it says, a man found him wandering in the fields. Now, it doesn't tell us anything about this man, not his name, where he's from, who he is, what he's doing there. But he just happens to know who Joseph's brothers are, and he happened to overhear them saying they were going to Dothan, which is another 15 or 20 miles away. And without that bit of information, there's no chance that Joseph would have found his brothers. Now, do you think that's a coincidence that this man finds him wandering around? I don't think so, and we'll revisit that thought at the end. But he finds his brothers, and here's where it goes south real quick. Here's where the story gets good for the readers. In verse 18, it says, They saw him from afar, and because he came near, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we'll see what will, be, what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead where their camel, with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. The Midian, then the Midianite traders passed by. 
They drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Then they took Joseph to Egypt. So this is open land. They can see Joseph coming. No doubt they recognize it's him because they recognize his robe of many colors. And their first thought is, let's kill him and cover it up. Now, how much do you have to hate someone to want to murder them? Much less, how much do you have to hate your own brother to want to kill him? This is astonishing hatred, and this is a group of brothers planning this together, and their hatred is centered on his dreams. Let's see if his dreams come true when he's dead. And the only reason they don't kill him on the spot is because Reuben hears what the rest of them are planning and and tells them, don't do this. And instead of killing him with your own hands, let's throw him into a pit and essentially let him die on his own. But the author tells us that Reuben actually said this because he was planning to come back later and rescue him and restore him to his father. Perhaps Reuben was going to do this in an attempt to get back on his father's good side. After all, we know in the last chapter it told us that Reuben slept with Billa, his father's concubine. Either way, they do listen to Reuben. And so when Joseph gets there, they strip him of his fancy robe, throw him into this dry pit. Some translations say cistern, which is similar to a well. Usually in this area of the world, they'd have this dome-like structure built over it with a narrow top to keep dust and sand and, and sunlight out of the well. So it would be narrow at the top and wide down at the bottom, making it virtually impossible for someone to climb out of this on their own. There's no doubt that if they left Joseph in this pit, he would eventually die. But in their minds, they'd be able to say, we didn't kill him. We didn't, uh, we didn't kill him with our own hands. So they start off with murderous intent, and then we see they're pretty callous about it as well. It says they sat down to eat. You know, for a lot of people, when you're worried or really uneasy, you can't eat or you don't feel like eating. And you would kind of think that you would feel a little uneasy about your plans to leave your brother to die in a pit. But these guys are so consumed with their hatred and so comfortable with this plan that they can sit down and eat and have lunch all while hearing their brother cry for help from the pit. But then the callousness gives way then to this opportunistic idea. They see a caravan of Ishmaelites coming by, heading to Egypt. The the goods that they're bearing uh, would be taken to Egypt to use for mummification. Then Judah has an epiphany. Let's not kill them and cover it up. Why? Because we can't make any money off of that. Instead, let's sell our brother as a slave. So in Judah's moral reasoning, this is a better thing for them to do as brothers than killing him. He says, after all, he's our own flesh and blood, so we're better people if we sell him into slavery. Some weird moral reasoning there. But they sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites, and it tells us they took Joseph to Egypt. Now that may be the most important line in this whole story, and we'll come back to it. First, let's finish out this chapter. Look at verse 29. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, 
It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is with, without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All of his sons and all of his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, the officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So apparently Reuben had left at some point during their decision to sell Joseph. When he comes back, he finds out what's happened. He is completely in distress. How can he go back to his father now? But then they come up with this plan to cover up what they've done. And there's some true irony in this story. If you think back to Jacob deceiving his father, Isaac, in order to steal Esau's blessing, he did it using a slaughtered goat. He makes stew from a goat and then uses the hair of the goat to put on his arms to deceive his father. And isn't it ironic then that Jacob is later deceived by his sons with a slaughtered goat? They take the goat's blood and smear it all over the robe of many colors, the robe that would easily be identified as Joseph's robe. And they so easily deceive Jacob into thinking his favorite son has been killed by wild animals. And it sends Jacob into this grief that he refuses to come out of. I think we can conclude this is an unhealthy grief as well. Um, and it's tied up in the fact that Joseph was his favorite child. It already says he mourned for Joseph many days. And even after that, all his sons and daughters come to comfort him, but he refuses to be comforted. He says, no, I shall go down to Sheol, that is the grave, to my son mourning. In other words, I'm just going to mourn until I die. And that's obviously not a healthy grieving process. He's nursing and hanging on to this grief over his son rather than processing it. And most importantly, being a father to the rest of his children. Meanwhile, back in Egypt, Joseph is sold to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, and that will set up the rest of the story in Genesis 39. Now, as informed readers of the Bible, <clears throat> we never read any portion of the scripture in isolation. It's a very important rule for you in reading the Bible to know that scripture interprets scripture. That's an important rule for reading the Bible on our own. Scripture interprets scripture. That means that Scripture is its own best interpreter. You, you best understand any verse or chapter or book of the Bible when you understand how it fits in the context of the rest of the Bible. Sometimes those relations are very obvious, like when Jesus or an apostle in the New Testament quotes something from the Old Testament and tells us exactly what it means and how it applies other times it takes a little bit longer, more serious thought and meditation to find the connection. That's also why you need to read your whole Bible. The more you know the whole thing, the better you will understand all the parts that make it up. So when you come to the story of Joseph, we don't just look at it in isolation. We also look at it through the lens of the rest of Scripture. And I want us to do that right now and, and pull out two themes that are undercurrents of this story. The first is the theme of the righteous sufferer, the righteous sufferer, and this ultimately points us to Jesus. You could just put the theme of Jesus found in Joseph's story. Many scholars would say that Joseph's story is meant to point us to Christ 
Or they would say that Joseph is a type of Christ. Remember, we've talked about typology before in the book of Genesis. And in the, in the most basic form, a type is something in the Old Testament that foreshadows something greater to come in the New Testament. Dr. Jim Hamilton describes the type that Joseph represents as the righteous sufferer. This theme has its foundations back in Genesis chapter 3. When God laid down the curse on the serpent, he told the serpent that there would be hostility or enmity between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. That is the the line of the righteous and the line of the wicked. There would be continual hostility. And that plays out repeatedly in the Old Testament with those when those through whom God means to establish salvation. At first, that person suffers rejection and persecution, but then they're unexpectedly exalted to power and authority. We see this theme play out over and over again. That's what will happen with Joseph. He's innocent. He's righteous. God is obviously giving him these dreams, but he's hated and rejected by his brothers. He ends up as a slave. He's later falsely accused and imprisoned until suddenly being exalted to the second most powerful person in Egypt. We see this later on with the theme of Moses as well. When he initially attempts to help his Hebrew brothers, they reject him. He spends 40 years living in obscurity until God raises him up to be his leader, to lead his people out of slavery. Then there's David. David's anointed the next king of Israel by Samuel, by the command of God himself. But then he spends years uh, running away from King Saul, who's trying to kill him until he's finally placed on the throne. And then finally, the theme of this righteous sufferer comes to full fulfillment in the greatest way possible in Jesus Christ. He is God's means of salvation for his people. Just like Joseph would be God's means of saving the 12 tribes during the worldwide famine. But even though Jesus is the Messiah, he's rejected and persecuted by his own people. Just like Joseph, he is rejected and persecuted by his own brothers. And that persecution leads Jesus to being crucified on a cross and buried in a tomb. They think he's dead and gone. Just like Joseph, he's thrown into a pit, then sold as a slave. And to his brothers, he's as good as dead and gone. He's out of their life. But of course, Jesus doesn't stay dead. He rises from the grave and is seated at the right hand of God. He's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Just like Joseph will rise from being in prison in the pit to the second most powerful man in the known world. And his brothers will in the end come bow down to him. See, Joseph's story is one that resonates so much with us because in so many ways it, it foreshadows the pattern of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That's one of the greatest examples of Scripture interpreting Scripture. Knowing your Bible as a whole makes that story come to life in new ways. But there's one more theme I want us to pull out, and that is the theme of providence. What is the providence of God? Well, John Piper defines God's providence as his purposeful sovereignty. God's providence is his purposeful sovereignty. And when we say God is sovereign, we mean that God has the right and the power to do all that he decides to do. Providence, though, shows us how God's sovereignty is actually put to work. God's providence is his sovereignty in action. 
So you could say God's providence is his purposeful sovereignty by which he will be completely successful in accomplishing all his goals and purposes for his creation. And in the providence of God, we know that all things work towards the accomplishment of God's will, even when we can't see it, how it all works together from our point of view. And there's hardly a better story in the Bible that highlights the providence of God like the story of Joseph. Of course, in the end of Joseph's story, he'll say those famous words, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. That phrase shows later on that Joseph himself can even see that God was orchestrating all these events all along to accomplish his purposes. But even already in this chapter, we can see God's providential hand. This providence has ties all the way back to Genesis chapter 15. There in Genesis 15, 13, God told Abraham, he said, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So we know that at some point, Abraham's descendants will, will have to end up in a foreign land where they will be oppressed before God's promise, or in order for God's promise to come true. Of course, we know that Egypt ends up being that place where that happens, and that's where Joseph comes in. The fulfillment of that promise is initiated with Joseph. His father sends him on this errand to check on his brothers. He's lost and can't find them and just happens to run into some stranger in the wilderness in the middle of nowhere that just happens to have overheard where his brothers went nearly 20 miles away. And then when he finds them, they throw him into a pit and are planning on leaving him to die. But then a caravan of Ishmaelites happened to come by on their way to Egypt and they decide to sell him instead. And so Joseph ends up in Egypt. And if you think all that's random or all that's just a coincidence, then I've done a poor job in explaining this story. You see, at any of those points in the story, if those things didn't happen, Joseph doesn't end up in Egypt. If he doesn't run into the stranger in the wilderness and he can't find his brothers, he just ends up returning home. If the caravan had not come by, he either would have died in the pit or been rescued by Reuben. Either way, he doesn't end up in Egypt. And if he doesn't end up in Egypt, then he doesn't end up as the second most powerful man in the world that gives him the ability 20 years later to have the position to save his family during the worldwide famine. And so the descendants of Abraham die out in the famine. The story's over. The Bible's over. But of course, that's not going to happen because God has made a promise and God has established his purposes and they will come to pass. And we see in God's providence, all these pieces of the puzzle fit together. And that leads to Joseph in slavery in Egypt, where he'll eventually be able to save his family. And beyond that, that's where the Israelite people will grow and multiply and end up being slaves until God raises up Moses to free his people through signs and wonders and bring them back to the promised land. See, all those pieces of the puzzle start coming together in the story of Joseph. There is much more going on behind the scenes than we think when we sometimes read these stories. And that's the beauty of God's providence. It's God's sovereignty at work. And it's exactly 
because of his providence, the, the Apostle Paul can say in Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. If it wasn't for God's providence, there would be no basis for Paul to say that. But it's because God is bringing about that good through his providential hand. And he's bringing about that good for you at this very moment. And here's your homework for today. I want you to take time this afternoon, take time tonight, sometime this week, to think back over your life. Maybe list out major events, major decisions, major relationships, milestones. Then try to identify how God has used all those things to bring you to where you are today. Take the time to recognize God's providential hand in your own life. And I guarantee that when you do, it'll encourage you, it'll give you a greater confidence in God, and it will deepen your love for God. All because you'll recognize that, that he's actually at work in your life, and he is working all things together for good. Things don't happen by random accident. Things don't happen by chance. But they're all being worked together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Would you pray with me?